You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. Well, welcome everyone to season three of Carbon Removal Newsroom, our first episode. And I am Radhika Mugafkar. I am at Nori. I'm the supply program manager. With me today, I have Holly Jean Buck, Assistant Professor of Environment and Sustainability at the University of Buffalo in New York, and author of Ending Fossil Fuels to be published this fall. Welcome, Holly. Hey, Radhika. Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks for coming. And then I also have Chris Barnard, Policy Director at the American Conservation Coalition and co-editor of Green Market. Hey, Chris, thanks for joining. My pleasure. And a special guest today is Ross Kenyon, uh, creative editor at Nori. So Ross, thanks for joining. No problem, a special. Uh, what are you trying to imply? I'm trying to imply that you're not a regular panel member and only here for our first episode. That's true. Well, maybe that's a good place to start then is explain kind of the, the vision for the season or what's new about it. How are you thinking about it, Radhika? Yeah, so we are thinking about, um, we're excited to bring it back and we're going to do a policy focused half an hour podcast every week. It'll be focused around carbon removal, but we want to be broader than that. Think about sustainability, think about equity and social justice in the environmental space. Um, and just generally talk about things that are going well, not going well, and the trends we're seeing in, in the world, hopefully broader than North America, because, uh, you know, one of our panelists, Chris, has a tie to Europe, so we want to make sure we get the whole world included in our conversations. Um, with that, today we're going to talk about the Air Miners Conference, and for those of you who don't know, Air Miners is one of the um, primary online carbon removal communities. They're kind of mainly focused in the entrepreneurial space, but also have lots of conversations about policy and other things. Today, they had a three-hour conference, or four-hour conference, I guess, where we had a few different breakout sessions, and we we're just going to talk about it and what our opinions on it and what we heard and learned. Um, and we'll kind of start with the keynote at the beginning of the um, conference and Ross, you had some thoughts, I know. So what were you thinking? Indeed, yeah, the conference was kicked off by Marcus Extravor from XPRIZE, gave an excellent keynote that set the tone for the entire day. The thing that I most gravitated toward and maybe I'm a bit of a broken record on this one, but he had this phrase I really liked. It was, don't fight over zero. So many of these carbon removal approaches or projects or companies are but the wee glimmer of an idea in the ideator's mind. And uh, some people are already fighting over which of these technologies or approaches will reign supreme. And I often find myself a bit uncomfortable with declaring that ahead of time. I know there are people who say that direct air capture and more synthetic or industrial approaches will never scale. The math of it will never make sense. And then I've seen people counter that the ecosphere will lose its ability to retain carbon inside of it in the next couple of decades. So we shouldn't be going in on carbon removal in soil or trees or other ecosystems. And uh, I think those are very fine things to talk about, but I'm also really cautious about taking sides in those things. There is a corresponding risk here, right? The corresponding risk is that I am not as critical as I should be. And I'm a bit too trusting sometimes. I'm just like, oh, that sounds good. 
uh, when really, so sometimes things get a free pass for me when they really should have someone a bit stricter. It's not to say that my attitude cannot be vicious in the sense that it is based on vice, but uh, that's my bias at least. So I really like the way that he set, set up that framework of trying to be ecumenical and broad. And there's a lot of other good things in that talk too, but that's where I started with and sort of carried with me. So Ross, I got to, you know, ask you though, if you're too broad, can you achieve anything? You know, I think that's right. One of the, one of the criticisms of that kind of perspective is you have to be focused to be, to be successful. Now, one of the cliches, and it's not cliche because it's, it's bad. It's just that people say it a lot is that there's no silver bullets, but I had a conversation with someone recently from air miners. I'm not sure if I should or should not name this person, but they said something like, I'm working for the silver bullet. I'm trying to find it. And I actually found it really refreshing. I'm like, oh, you're really going big, huh? And it had a bunch of ideas nested inside of each other, all of which required uh, serious engineering advances and material sciences advances. I'm like, I kind of root for that. I find that really refreshing given that uh, everyone is like portfolio based and broad. So, um, but yeah, I agree. There is a risk of being too broad you know, too much of a buckshot and you need the silver bullet sometimes. Yeah. Or at least a few silver bullets. How about you, Holly? Any, any thoughts on the opening, opening speech? Well, I thought it was compelling to have this, you know, CDR is having a moment and there's this kind of framing of, you know, at first below back, back in the days of 350 carbon removal was very far away, 350 parts per million, Um, you know, maybe one day we'd consider this. And then there was a next phase that he called carbon removal 1.0 between 400 and 415 parts per million, which is, it's definitely possible. The climate math says we need to do it. And now this is this new carbon removal 2.0 phase where the market is asking for it and we're moving from push to pull. And I mean, if it's right, that is a very exciting time. Do you, would you guys characterize it that way as well? I I found that framing quite compelling in my mind. And, you know, I'm probably the newest entry into the carbon removal space in this group. And um, it has been fascinating to watch just in my few months at Nori, the explosion of ideas and people and talk around this space. And when I hear the founders go back to 2017, when nobody was thinking about it, um, it really seemed... Yeah, that framing really resonated with me. And I do feel like we're in this new new world order around carbon removal where people embrace it and want, accept it and realize it's a kind of a necessity to get where we need to go. Um, what about you, Chris? Yeah, unfortunately, I wasn't able to attend the, the keynote, but that theme that you were talking about of kind of not hedging your bets on just the, on just the one um, silver bullet or... Uh, the need to have a bunch of different ideas being tried across the board uh, was re- repeated in one of the later panels, which was really interesting, um, by Erin Burns from, mm-hmm. from Carbon 180. And, and she was talking about that, that we just need, just everyone needs to try what they're best at and to, to give their all. And, and the problem with, with silver bullets is that um, sometimes uh, they turn out not to be a silver bullet and then you're left in an even worse position than you were before. Um, and, and going back to what Holly was saying is we, we're, we're reaching a stage where so many people are interested in this and so many different people with different skill sets from different backgrounds are approaching this idea of carbon removal and, and bringing their skill sets to this 
to find a solution that, that they can work on. And so um, the more and more people we're seeing enter this space, the more likely we're, we're going to see a broad variety of potential solutions that can leverage different things, such as uh, nature-based solutions, which are entirely different from uh, technological solutions, such as direct air capture, but they're not mutually exclusive. Um, and I think that, that having this kind of market um, incentive to remove carbon from the air um, is really what's going to drive a variety of solutions. And, and we shouldn't be putting all our, our eggs in one basket, but really trying to get as broad of a um, array of possible solutions, um, obviously without being absurd, but uh, I do definitely think that there's an importance in, in uh, making sure that we have like an all of the all of the above approach here. So yeah, pivoting a little bit to that um, conversation in, in the, the panel with the policy folks, which I think at least three of us attended. Um, I, Chris, was wondering if um, as our resident European, um, what you thought of that conversation around the hesitancy in Europe to um, embrace carbon removal and that the US was actually ahead of Europe on that, which, you know, always, I'm always as a US citizen glad to hear we're doing something a little faster than Europe in this space. But um, what did you think of that framing and that, um, and that observation? Yeah, sure. I mean, you're, you're totally right about the fact that, that the US um, has been leading on this issue, and that's something that was repeated in the panel. Um, and, and that's something they also said that the US tends to lead on these kinds of innovations and kind of going all the way back to the Second World War and then from the, the internet and, and the space race and all these different innovations tend to come from, from the US. And part of that is there is this kind of unique um, inventive culture in America that, that really pursues that. Um, and so America has been leading on, on many things, but also now also car carbon capture um, solutions. Um, but the, the reason why I think Europe tends to fall behind on these types of things is uh, there's a, a pretty strong um, mindset of the pre precautionary principle in Europe. Um, and for people that aren't necessarily um, familiar with what the precautionary principle is, it essentially uh, means that any innovation or policy should not be implemented if there is even a potential, potential small risk to public health. And in, for example, in the EU, that's been used to ban things such as biotechnology and GMOs. It's what they're using now to severely regulate artificial intelligence. It's been used a lot uh, really around the world to limit the advance of nuclear energy. Um, and, and I wouldn't be surprised that they have a similar mindset when it comes to carbon removal technologies that we're not sure what the exact impacts are. We're not sure what um, the scientific consensus is on this, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is that we're in a situation where we need to be experimenting with things, even if we don't know what the consequences are fully Obviously, we need to make um, educated guesses and, and try and minimize any potential damage, uh, but we don't know exactly what is going to happen, both positively and negatively. Uh, and, and so this kind of inventive spirit in America tends to be more willing to take those risks and to, to kind of have a, an entrepreneur um, risk their career on trying to come up with an amazing solution. They might fail, but they might also succeed, and that would be good for the rest of the world. Um, so I think there's just a, a slight difference in attitude between Europe and the U.S. And so that one of the things I heard and um, Holly or Ross jump in, please. Uh, but is also this idea that there's a lot of the um, fear that somehow by advocating for carbon removal, you are 
saying people don't need to accept, you know, to reduce admissions and that Europe in particular was concerned about that. And by maybe creating two different types of goals, one around se separating or emission reduction and one around carbon removal helps Europe move forward in this space. Did that resonate with you at all, Chris? Yeah, I mean, that's that's probably certainly uh, an important aspect to it. And um, there, especially recently, there's been this tendency in Europe um, like with the EU and kind of the, the centralization that's happening there to want to all be have to we have to all be on the same page we have to all pursue the one solution and all has to be directing all our efforts in one in one um, particular way um, and so there is probably this a little bit more of an attitude of um, it has to be centralized and focused whereas in the US it's a little bit more all of the above haphazard um, kind of wild west of the best solutions will emerge from the top and it's really kind of a, a libertarian streak there as well. Um, so I definitely think that's a part of the of what we're talking about here. Yeah, and so Holly, I think you were in that panel too. You listened in. What were your kind of thoughts about the um, policy discussion we were have that they were having? Anything jump out at you? Yeah, I had quite a different take on this U.S. versus Europe um, matter because to me, the reason the U.S. is in the position it's in is there's been this well-organized coalition of fossil fuel interest, interests lobbying for carbon capture use and storage, CCUS. I mean, going back, you know, a few decades now and the work that the, that's been going on at DOE um, has reflected that around carbon capture and storage. And they saw an opportunity with carbon removal and kind of grafted that into their agenda. And so I think that's the clearest reason why the US has some leadership in this space is because those relationships were already formed and well existing to grease some of the policies. Um, and so, you know, we have a lot of legislation addressing carbon capture use and storage and you'll have these hearings where, you know, somebody from the coal industry will come up and say, now we're going to rebrand coal as carbon ore. I mean, that's there, right? And, and this is one of the central tensions, I think, in this conference is that you have a community of really creative innovators doing amazing things. And the things that they're doing are going to be associated with the fossil fuel industry in the public mind if they don't, you know, really push out and articulate a different vision of what all of this is about. Yeah, I, I, they did touch on that a little bit, and I, that was, uh, I thought, an astute point. I thought, you know, what what I did appreciate though is, I think the wheels of government sometimes take a long time to get moving, and so the ability to leverage like the forty five Q, which um, in my perfect world would be even broader than industrial and be able to be used for nature based solutions, but the ability to use forty five Q. More broadly, was a was a win, um, and I think it was kind of because it was already in there for these industries. So it is an interesting tension of how you manage that, how you take advantage of that without being sucked into the narrative of their poor performance in the past. Um, Ross, you've been kind of quiet. Anything you want to add? I talk too much generally, so I'm happy to. <laughs> take a little break. No, I don't have a lot to add. I think those insights are uh, astute as well. Um, so the other thing that struck me from the policy um, panel was 
um, the talk about state and municipal and the power of the state and the municipal um, governments uh, and to push for push forward change. And you know what I was thinking a lot about is pollution and carbon removal and all that. It it spans state borders. So how how you get what if one state does what's right and another state doesn't do what's right? What does that mean? And so I don't know if either one of you. Um, we're thinking about that or any of you were thinking about that, but that was my thought. It was like, okay, so Washington state can, you know, create a perfect system, but if Idaho does not, how beneficial is it really for the states to do that? And does it really need to be more of a top down rather than bottom up um, kind of process? So you guys have any thoughts on that or? Yeah, yeah. I do. <laughs> Go for I mean, it, Holly. This is one of my two favorite points in that session. Um, because the, the influence with the local and the state levels, those can be horizontal. So states can learn from each other and they can also give clues and lessons to the federal government too. Yeah. So I think it's really promising. Yeah. Um, you know, the laboratory of democracy, right? The states are the laboratory of democracy. What about you, Chris? Where I was thinking you probably liked it being come from the conservative world. Yeah, I mean, you, you kind of stole the words out of my mouth with the uh, laboratory of democracy and, and the way I refer to it is often the laboratory of change. Um, and, and I'll give you a, a cool story uh, about four or five months ago, we, my organization, the American Conservation Coalition, we were on a um, road trip around the US in a Tesla. Mm -hmm. um, and the, this was called the electric election road trip. And the idea was to travel across uh, the US, we, would, we went to 35 states in 45 days to show the local innovations and solutions and, and, and ways of tackling climate change that are being, um, that are popping up all over the country, even when there is gridlock in Congress. Um, and in particular, we, uh, what struck me was when I, I joined part of the road trip in Utah and we went to um, a, a coal facility in aptly named Carbon County. Um, <laughs> And they were working there on a um, carbon capture machine to capture the emissions from the coal plant. And, and we were talking to these people and, and asked them, why do you, why, why are you doing this? Why do you care? And, and it's clear that it wasn't because they care so much about climate change and obviously they do, they wanna do the right thing for society, but it's such, climate change can be such an abstract thing. Um, but they see that the reality is that the market is pushing out coal um, and uh, they're very worried about their future and coal is their culture and their economy and their livelihood. Um, and, and so they wanted to be able to um, pursue that livelihood uh, well into the future. And so they're um, working on a carbon capture machine with the local university and with scientists and experts and all that um, with some support from the DOE to, to come up with a carbon capture machine that's capable of allowing the coal plant to, to become cleaner. And so that really struck me as um, the incentive really was there for them to be a part of this because they didn't want to be um, like have to learn a code or whatever, or they, 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 this is part of not just their livelihood, but it's also their culture, their, their father and grandfather and going back generations went to the coal mines and they want their future generations to be able to uh, be a part of that. And there might be a discussion about whether that's sensible or possible or whatever, but the fact is that they're trying um, and you see all the all different types of projects like this around the country. And so I am really encouraged by the fact that um, at the local level, you can really have people that care a lot, come up with these solutions, 
um, and really the best solutions can then compete. And, and also there might be solutions that work in Utah that might not work somewhere else. So um, I'm really a big fan of the kind of bottom-up model there. Yeah, I mean, that's, that is a nice story. And it, it, I don't disagree with anything that um, either one of you said, because I, I tend to be bullish on the states and like what, you know, the idea of creativity, but I do feel like there's a place for the federal government to make sure these, these different experiments do get then transferred across the country, you know, much like other initiatives throughout our, the history of this, of the United States that you try something in a state, but then it needs to be pushed out across the country for it to really be a successful uh, implementation of a policy like around emission reduction or something. Um, but I don't want to spend our whole time on the policy panel because I know there were some other panels. So I, I uh, wanted to pivot to the first panels of the morning. There was the nature-based and manufacturing science-based panel that I attended. And then what That's about all. you, Holly? I did go to that one, um, but being a, having worked at a university in this space for, I don't know, five or six years now, I, I wouldn't say I heard new stuff, but I was just yeah. glad to see that exchange happening in this sort of a space. I mean, it's really cool anytime you see innovators and academic scientists talking to each other. I think it's a good sign. Yeah, I, I would say, um, you know, what I was struck by in maybe all of the pan or the first pan two panels I went to, the last panel I went to was more on the equity piece, but was I, I was a little disappointed, frankly, that there was so much um, discussion around DAC and industrial solutions. And I felt like um, maybe nature-based solutions, particularly in the policy conversation, were a little bit given short shrift. And while I am a firm believer where we need to get going. I also don't want it to get lost in the excitement of, you know, of the billionaire class, as they said, and their excitement around technology. So in both of those panels, that's something that I noticed and was a little, you know, wanting to get more in depth on and felt like they didn't quite do that. My own opinion. I don't know, Holly, if you felt differently or. Well, one thing I did like from that session was Pete Smith um, mentioning that nature-based solutions you know, should be geared towards thinking about co-benefits yeah. and done for that reason, which is something I appreciate. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And it's something that we talk about at Nori, Nori a lot too, like the different co-benefits that these nature-based solutions provide to um, different parts of the population. And it's important not to lose sight of that. So yeah, um, I, would, I would completely agree with that. And I actually just finished a report about this topic and According to the, um, the uh, Natural Academy of the Sciences, uh, nature-based solutions can alone account for 37% of um, carbon emissions reductions needed by 2030. Um, and I mean, you, when talking to entrepreneurs and, and kind of those creative minds, you're always going to get people that are really excited about the technology and stuff like that. And that's, that's totally important. But um, it's, the cool thing about nature-based solutions is that so many people across America can be a part of that from farmers to ranchers to foresters to ocean conservationists um, so many people that don't necessarily have to have a PhD in computer technology or physics or whatever it is um, they just live on the land and work on the land can be a part of an, a natural solution um, and so that's why I'm, I'm really uh, excited about the potential there to uh, to reduce carbon emissions 
Yeah, I, I agree with that, Chris. And I think, I think there's something so tangible about nature-based solutions that the whole, you know, many people who even aren't in, who aren't well, well versed in carbon removal can understand because they're outside in it every single day. And it just makes kind of intuitive sense to them from their interactions. Um, Ross, anything from the first panel that you attended you want to highlight or you found interesting? No, nah, in fact, I'll probably have to edit out your even asking me about it just because I was <laughs> not really present for it. Sorry. Fine. I'm just, it's hard. I'm just trying to make sure everybody gets a voice in, you know, in all of us in different panels. So, all right. Well, then we'll get to the last hour of the day, which um, I, I went to the one kind of on equity, what or what for my old world we used to call equity and social justice, but um, has a different catchphrase in the environmental space. Um, I think Holly, you were in on that one too, weren't you? Yes, I was. Yeah, so what were your thoughts on that? I mean, <laughs> I almost felt like there, there were two different conferences going on. I, it, here, I mean, there was great discussion of, for example, um, a project that an indigenous group is doing. It's a regenerative Buffalo range project, which mm -hmm. is going to be the world's largest Native American owned and managed herd. Yep. And, and, and that actually led into a discussion of um, land return and land ownership that I thought was really interesting and important. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was excited about, about that. So when you say two different conferences, it felt like most of the conferences was sort of like about entrepreneurial stuff and, and facilitating that. And then this, this piece was more about like actual people on the land and the impacts and the long-term, long-term land distribution policies that this country has had and how you kind of reverse them. Because we also talked about the black farmers and how they've been impacted by, there was conversation around that. So that was kind of the dichotomy I was thinking about as we were sitting in that meeting is like the future looking and the backward looking kind of in the same, same space of time, it felt like. Yeah, well, for me, it was like this panel was really had a transformative vision animating it that went far beyond um, tracking carbon flows, right? Yeah. But the, it coming from the policy panel and thinking about how so much of the policy has been shaped and animated by the fossil fuel industry and enhanced oil recovery and other things like that, it, it, there's just this kind of disconnect where <laughs> I, I fear. Uh, that will will trip up with it. I um I really appreciated how the um, gentleman from that tribe that's um, developing the buffalo herd talked about in the 70s and 80s when the folks came, environmental groups came to talk to his his um, tribe, and basically the answer of the elders were, you know, figure out how to take care of one another and take treat everybody equitably and then this that framework will lead to solutions around and the earth will kind of heal itself and i i found that reframing really compelling and interesting and uh, um, a a a night a nice broadening kind of of what we need to do in the um, environmental space and i think it, it resonated with me quite a bit so um 
I don't really have much more to say about that panel, except that it was very different and it was very interesting. And I was happy that they included it and gave voice. Um, there was also two other folks on the panel. I don't want to not kind of discuss them. There was an African-American gentleman who has developed a new type of prop, if I was understanding it correctly, that's much more robust. His name was Joe and can sequester carbon, but he's doing a lot of work um, in the inner cities. And that was an, also a interesting um, application of carbon removal and how you can do it maybe at a more micro scale along with the other panelists who's working with Vietnamese, no, sorry, Cambodian rice farmers to basically create um, biochar. And again, it's being done at a micro, um, at a micro level, but could have significant obviously impacts if you have lots of projects at that level going. And so I think it was also a nice comparison between these vast sort of um, carbon capture ideas and these more on the ground, smaller projects that in aggregate can have huge impacts. Um, so that was another thing that I was thinking about as we were listening in that panel. Holly, anything else you want to note about that? Yeah, thinking about your observation there, I do wish there had been somebody who was working on industrial carbon capture because I don't I don't want to leave people with the impression that the things that are oriented towards social justice are all land based. Yeah, the industrial stuff is like the, you know, we're just going to build it thing. I mean, we need to break apart that binary. Yeah, that's a that's an important observation. And I think it was touched upon in by one, um, you know, one person that the most basic thing in the first panel, right? The most basic thing of any of these uh, CDR technologies is they can do no harm. And so, which I don't think has always been the viewpoint of technological innovation, right? But we all have to start from that very, very basic understanding that what you do does no harm. And maybe this goes to Chris's concerns about why Europe isn't as innovative because they maybe take that to the point of not being able to be creative. And what about you, Chris? Were you in the other panel or did you only go to the policy one? Yeah, I was in the other panel and that was definitely the, the forward-looking uh, high-techy panel. Um, and I mean, in particular, talking about how uh, accelerator programs can foster creating a new wave of carbon removal companies. And, and so it, it was just kind of interesting to hear from people in this space emphasize to what extent there is a huge economic opportunity in that um, that investors are more and more flocking to this. And, and um, I mean, just looking at um, the, the XPRIZE um, setup and how they're um, kind of going to be incentivizing this whole new generation of companies and ideas for carbon removal. Um, I think the, the entrepreneurship that's, that's been coming out of this space and will continue to come out of this space um, is, is definitely really cool. Um, who, who was on that panel? Like, what did they highlight? Or what groups did they highlight, Chris? So there was uh, Chris Coleridge, Tito Jankowski, mm -hmm. Hannah Davis, and Alex Kopelian. I'm not sure if I butchered his last name. Um, I can't remember any specific companies that they were talking about, but they were just mainly talking about the, um, the kind of way to set it up um, and, and how these accelerated programs work. Um, and, and one of the interesting things actually was uh, that especially Alex was talking about is the fact that 
you want to be able to also connect um, your average investor, like someone on Robinhood or whatever, to companies like this to be able to be part of that. Um, and sometimes it's not as easy, like startups tend to go for like private um, um, fundraising and things like that. But it'd be cool to find ways to connect more with the broader public, like uh, kind of like a GoFundMe crowdfunding um, type uh, campaign, which would be really interesting. And, and then they also talked about how um, the media, how media relations and communications is also a really important part of this, that, um, that companies should not only be focusing purely on kind of the science and the technology, but also communicate with, with the broader public and kind of raise, raise awareness about these issues. And that links into the, the way of trying to get more public support financially, but also otherwise and politically uh, for these types of projects. So um, it was interesting looking at it from just beyond just the technology aspect to how does this fit in with the wider kind of ecosystem of trying to come up with a solution to a problem. It's funny, just this morning, I was talking to a, um, a startup who's in the, this space and, and they were just mentioning how one of part of their business model is thinking about crowdsourcing and crowdfunding for different um, aspects of what they're trying to do. So I think there are people out there thinking creatively like that. And, you know, Ross, I'd actually be interested to get your perspective on this being one of the co-founders of Nori and having gone through a fundraising round or multiple in you know, this more creative aspect, like moving outside of the traditional sources. Sure. And Hannah Davis, who's one of the panelists there, we went through her accelerator at Nori actually. And she was talking a little bit about us and Regen Network, which was another uh, mm -hmm. cohort member of ours from that same time, 2017 in Denver. It's a great program. We got a lot out of it. We're all pretty grateful that we were able to do it. Um, but yeah, we did a Republic Reg CF round uh, and Reg CF is open to uh, unaccredited investors. So uh, it's pretty hard to invest in early stage companies if you're not already wealthy. Um, but there are various provisions under the Jobs Act that happened during the Obama presidency that make it much more accessible to regular people to uh, participate in offerings like that. So I, I think in general, that's a good thing to do. They actually just raised the limits too. It used to be, you could only raise, I think a million from a reg CF round. I think it's been up to 5 million under certain circumstances. And that just happened a few months ago, but I think things like that are pretty exciting and pretty good. Um, There's always, I guess, the balance of the risk that it provides uh, and the reward, you know, I, the limitations on income, I would imagine are based on, they don't want somebody to you know, lose their shirt if they can't really afford to. And these are risky propositions, but you still want to give everybody the opportunity. Another tension point. <laughs> it's the same as when you were talking earlier about federalism, where my bias is definitely towards decentralization. Um, but there are a number of cases you could bring to my attention where I'd say, oh, that sounds like a great case for a centralized authority to set a nice baseline because that makes me really uncomfortable when people are able to do something like that. And the same happens with this too, where my bias is certainly in favor of you should give people as much autonomy as, um, as you really can. You should trust them to make decisions. And sometimes those decisions are going to be bad. Um, but there are also people I've met who... I don't know if I'll keep this in the show, but I met one guy who was telling me about BitConnect. I'm like, all right. And then lo and behold, <laughs> a couple of months later, I don't know how much money he lost. It is funny uh, for Holly and Chris, like to me, there's so many overlaps right now between what we're doing, the crypto space and the space um, and this free free market dynamic 
as I'm as I'm reading that book, you may we're making us all read Ross, but all to be edited out. Um, okay, well, so that kind of covers the topics at the um, at the conference, and that brings us kind of to the keynote, or I guess that was called the keynote, the last speaker of the day, who um, threw out all sorts of stats and stuff. And I, I've got to admit, I couldn't keep them all straight, but I think what I what did resonate with me from her. Um, speech or her talk was that things are moving in the right direction in terms of funding, that there have been multiple factors, more money poured into the space, but it's still only a tiny fraction of what is available in the venture capital space. And so, you know, that the, the um, possibilities are endless for funding and innovation and that, what was her catchphrase, like climate change is the best job creator we have or something to that effect. We hung out um, at Clubhouse too. That was pretty fun. Oh yeah. That. Well, tell us about that. Cause I, I don't know, did Holly or Chris join on Clubhouse? I was not on it. So how was that? Holly was there. We mostly did what we just did now, uh, albeit times it by 12 or 13 because that's how many people were there. Um, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, they really wanted to talk about the TikTok generation and you know, carbon <laughs> oh, <yeah>. influencers. <laughs> Who are carbon remover influencers? Well, I don't know, but we need them, right? That was the takeaway. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm such a big proponent of of memes, and that's the best part of air miners, or one of the best in my humble estimation. But I love uh, humor. I love uh, art and funny things, and memes are really important and undervalued, I would say, in general. So if you're looking for a way to contribute to a carbon removal future, and you know your way around Photoshop, it's memery for you. That's that's what we need, or a TikTok dance. I don't know. I'm not the person to ask for that one, though. Uh, Holly, is that more you? <laughs> Maybe her daughter. Like you know, it's that uh, we, it's my, it's the next generation who are doing those TikToks. Uh, and I just sounded so old. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, with that, I am will. You know, I think we will say thank you for the first episode of season three of Carbon Removal Newsroom. We look forward to a great season moving forward and being in your feed on a regular basis. Thanks. And thank you, Holly, Chris, and Ross for joining me today. It was a fun conversation. Pleasure for having us, yeah. Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom. If you like the show, the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in Apple Podcasts, following the show on Spotify, and by sharing the show on social media. Tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal.